loans. But if you look in source three, a very similar Gemara is found in the case of more classic tzaka, of, hand, of handouts, of charity. Patoch tiftach, you shall surely open your hand. I might have thought that you only give to the poor of your city, right? So here it's formulated in an even stronger way that you might have thought that charity is limited to those in your city. How do I know that you have any obligation to the poor in another city? It has the double language, open, you shall surely open, which teaches that it may not be primary, but you still have an obligation of charity to those outside your city. You shall surely give. I only know that you should give a large gift. How do I know that even if he only requires a little bit, I should give as well? Um, the double language again teaches that any gift that is necessary um, is what you give. Um, and if you just skip for a second to number five, the um, the Chavetz Chaim wrote a book, or Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan, the author of the Chavetz Chaim, wrote another book called Avad Chesed, which is a more general book, um, well, not a more general book, is a book on certain monetary laws, including um, primarily the laws of loaning money. I mean, he argues that it's not just loans and it's not just charity that has this sort of geographic standard. But he says, All these rules of precedence that are set above. It's not only for lending money or objects. The same is true of any thing that people need, right? Anything that you're doing for somebody else, these rules of priority, of priority apply. Okay, so that's the background to our discussion. Um, okay, so before I continue, why do you think we have this principle in place? Um, and what tension or what problems do you see with this principle in general? And Right, specifically, how would you think that we apply it in the modern world? Right, any of those questions you want to take up before we start fleshing it out in the sources? Go ahead. Okay, so I'll continue then. Um, so, so as I said, um, the first thing we do have to note is that the geographic standard um, or even in general, the standard of those closest to you, um, that standard, as we saw, is balanced against the standard of need, um, where the Gemara there brings two different things, right? On the one hand, it says, all these rules of your poor, the Jewish poor, um, the poor of your city take priority. Um, but it also introduces the need, right? Which is aniva ashir, anikodem. The poor and the rich, so you give to the poor person first. Now, again, that's in the case of loans. You're obviously not giving a handout to someone who's rich. Um, but that does highlight the extent to which um, all these standards of priority in terms of relationship with the person is going to have to be balanced against the question of need. Um, and the exact way in which that balance is not 100% clear. Um, I, I gave you, Justin, here in, in, in 12, um, that the Panim Yafot in his parish to Dvarim takes the very radical claim that um, all the geographic claims, all the fa familial claims, all of that, um, that is only a second tier and the, of uh, of parameters, and that comes after the need-based uh, parameter. And only if the needs are equal, so then we worry about um, geography, family, uh, things like that. But if um, someone needs the money more and they're not from your city, right? You live in a relatively affluent city, so what me it means to be poor in your city. Um, 
means maybe someone needs help with uh, tuition, um, which is a common occurrence. Um, but the town next door, let's say, um, the poor are much poorer and need food. So then the poor of the town next to you would have priority um, because their need is much greater. Um, and if you look, for example, here in 11, Shulchan Aruch summarizes that within need, we also have rules. So that feeding the hungry takes precedence over clothing the naked. Um, right, so they're all the they're all these standards that relate not to community and geography, but simply um, to need, right? And that may or may not negate all of these rules, or not negate, override the rules of community. Um, but that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, the next point to keep in mind is that um, even before we get to your relatives and your you know, your family, your friends, your community, um, there is actually one person who gets priority over any of them, and that is yourself, right? If by giving the money, you would be put in poverty. Uh, so you're not obligated to do that because you are the closest person to yourself. Um, in the well-known Gemara number four, where the Gemara says, my what does Rabbi Yochanan do with the verse, and your brother shall live with you? So the, the Gemara teaches you, the Talmud teaches you, it teaches you what we find in the following Brayta, that if two people were walking, and they need water, and one of them has a jug of water, if they both drink, they both die. If one drinks, he survives. So Darish ben Petora, Mutav Ben Petora says, you can never let the other person die. It's better you both drink, survive a little longer, and then die. But we rule at Shabbat Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva came and said, no. Um, your life comes first. So the second point to note is that all of this is only when we're dealing with other people. When it comes to you, you are allowed to prioritize yourself and not let yourself descend into that level of, of poverty, into that level of need. Um, okay. I briefly gave you the summary of um, how exactly some of these priorities work um, from Shulchan Aruch, um, because the Talmud doesn't give us that much, right? The Talmud says that your poor, your family is poor, um, but it doesn't actually explain how we prioritize within the family, right? Because you could have kids and parents and siblings, and you could have cousins and second cousins and third cousins and uncles and aunts and the like. Um, and different relatives might need, need, need different things. So here, Shulchan Aruch um, tells you that so if you have grown up children who you're not technically obligated to support anymore, but they need the money, um, either they're poor or this will allow them to learn Torah or stay on the proper path. Or your parents need. So that's staka. Um, and right, your parents go first because now you have the added. It's not just stakats, also keep it right, So after parent and child, so he says, even if they're not your parent and child, it's a relative. They come before other people. Um, brothers on the father's side, come before maternal brothers. The poor of your house come before the poor of your city. And the poor of your city come before the poor of um, other cities. Um, and if you skip to seven, um, this idea that your primary obligation is to your family and then to your city, uh, this has another implication. Um, not just on how you give tzedakah, but on how those people in charge of communal funds 
um, are obligated to divvy out funds. So Shulchan Arach notes in, uh, in number seven that Anishi Yesh Krovim Ashirim, that if you have a poor person who has rich relatives, who can support him, so then the communal staka distributor doesn't have to support them. Even though the rich relatives also contribute to the communal um, charity fund, it doesn't matter. The fact that they have a more intense obligation to their family means that they should actually be supporting their family before the community has to. Um, now, it is just important to note that these priorities aren't meant to be exclusive, right? Meaning you don't say, well, I'm giving to my um, relative and therefore I don't have to give to anybody else or I'm giving to someone in my city and I'm just going to give to one person and call it a day. Um, that's also not great because A, multiple people need and also um, the more you give, the more generous you become and giving it in one fell swoop it might really help that person, but it doesn't help you become a more giving person. And therefore, Shulchan Aruch rules in number uh, in the continuation here in seven that lo adam Don't give all of your staka um, to a single poor person. And then the last thing that's important to note is that these priorities of your family that applies to your money. But if you happen to be the um, or you're a rabbi in a community and you have um, the rabbi's discretionary fund. Um, that money, you don't prioritize your family, right? Just because you happen to have access to those char charitable funds, um, that's not when we talk about these priorities. And Shulchan Aruch therefore says, if you are the person distributing charitable funds, you have to make sure not to give your family more. And the Ramah clarifies the Davka Gabai. Obviously, that's only someone distributing, distributing public funds. But if it's your private money, that's what you're supposed to doing, be doing. You can and should. The Hain Kod Min, right? You can give it to whoever you want. And in fact, they have priority. Okay. But like I oh, I have a question. No. It's just me. I just put the source sheet. Okay. Um, but like I said, all of this is very nice in the time of the Gemara, or maybe even in most of the medieval period, maybe through most of the modern period, when the people that you associated with were the people in your physical neighborhood. And therefore, we were never forced to ask, what does it really mean to be your poor, the poor of your city? Because like I said, if you were in a city, it's likely that the people you affiliated with and associated with were the people that were also geographically closest to you. But that's not the reality in the modern world. Um, in the modern world, often the people that we happen to live next to, we don't immediately think of as our community. And this is especially true, I think, when it comes to organizations, right? Where if we think in terms of, um, you know, who do we affiliate more? As, as Rabbi Huda Zoldan puts it this way. Um, let's see if I actually put it here. No. Um, it was a long piece, but I think his, the way he frames the question is very clear. He says, okay, let's take a, a very easy uh, scenario. Let's say that you are, I don't know, an alum, uh, alumna, alumnus, whatever, of, take your pick right? Whatever high school you went to, whatever college you went to, um, or you have kids in a school and you really, really identify with the message of that school. Okay. So I live here in Efrat, right? So my kids go to Orzion, right? I'm an, I'm an alumnus of, of, I went to Rambam for high school. I went to, I went to Yeshiva at Haritzion for Yeshiva. I went to YU for several degrees. Um, let's say I'm living here and for whatever reason, next door to my house, a, a Satmer Kolel opens up. Why? I don't know. Um, but they do, right? They open up next door. There's very theoretical. There's cheap land next door. There isn't, but let's say there was, right? So they open up. So now 
The way Rehud Zoldin says it is, does the rule of Aniyei Ircha tell me that this Satmar Kolel, when they're having their fundraiser, they can knock on my door and they can say, listen, you claim to keep halacha. So I understand that you identify with Yeshiva Haratziyam because you're an alumnus, but that's 15 minutes away in a different city that's in Alon Shvut. And we are the Satmar Kolel of Efrat. Right, we are your neighbors, and you've allocated however much money to charity. We expect you, as a halacha um, keeping Jew, to give the money to us, or at least prioritize us over your amla mater. Because, well, what's an amla mater? Right, we are ani yircha. We are the poor of your city. So the way Rabbi Huda Zoldin says it is: is that legitimate? Is that what the rule of ani yircha? Tells us. Um, so what evidence, so, well, two things. What evidence do we have? Um, and two, what do you think, right? Do you think it should, right? Do you think the Satmar Kolel has the moral halachic right to knock on my door and say, prioritize us as your local Kolel over your alma mater, right? Does Ani Ercha say that that's true. One, what do you think? And two, how would we go about figuring it out? Nope. Okay. Um, okay, so Ilana says, well, maybe we should redefine ear to be something other than geography, right? To say, as we said before, listen, it used to be that ear was your city and the people you associated with and everything all together. But nowadays we can split between geography and whatever that other thing is, affiliation, identification with um, community in the broader sense of the word. And maybe the halacha never really was about geography. Maybe it was about identification, association, right? And now that we pull them apart, Right, association will get priority over geography. Now, how might we get, how might we prove this? So one possible way of looking at this is the case of Aniye Eretz Yisrael, right? The poor of Israel. Um, because the halacha is that Aniye Eretz Yisrael take priority over other poor people. But the question is, what does that mean, right? When we say that the poor of Eretz Israel take priority over um, other poor, does that mean they take priority over the people in your city? Right? That this overrides even Aniye Ircha, in which case, um, maybe this just shows that Israel is, is important in a way that uh, it has like superpowers. Um, in halacha, um, or is it saying that the poor of Israel take priority? At, right, it's the order is the poor of your your family, then the poor of your city, then the poor of Israel, and then the poor of other cities that are not in Israel. Right, in which case, um, right, maybe that would show that again it's the kedusha or. The third possibility is that Ani Eretz Israel are equivalent to the poor of your city. And if that's the case, it might be that what that shows is that um, the idea of city is not only geographic, because maybe the reason that the poor of Israel become equivalent to those of your city is because it's about, right, who do we identify with? And the community in Israel, we all have a connection with, even if we don't live there. So if you looked at number eight in the Bach, the Bach says, "Hachitanya b'sifrei." Those who live in Israel take priority over those in the diaspora. So the Bach says this is only in a case where you're dealing with people not from your city, right? You live in New York, and the option is now poor people who live in um, Miami or poor people who live in Yerushalayim. Um, he says, they are, So then, as a New Yorker, 
the order is New York, Yerushalayim, Miami. But your poor always take precedence, even over the poor of Israel. And he thinks this is even if the poor from Miami come to visit you in New York, the fact that they happen to show up in New York doesn't make them New Yorkers. And therefore you would still give priority to those who are in Israel over those poor from Miami. Now from the Bach, we can't we can prove very little. Um, because it could just be, look, in the end of the day, he gives priority to your city. And then once we're talking about people that are not in your city, so, okay, right? Then you give precedence to Israel. However, if you look at number nine, Ruf Kook very succinctly says, Ani Eretz Yisrael, Nikraim Gamkein Ani Ercha. The poor of Israel are also called the poor of your city. Now, if that's the case, right? So A, halachically, that means that if you're a New Yorker, you have an equal obligation to the poor of New York and the poor of Israel. Um, but it also highlights the fact that there is a value that is equivalent, well, not a value is equivalent, that the notion of Ircha, of your city, isn't only about who is actually in your community. Because the people in Miami are still closer to you than the people in Israel physically. And yet we say that, no, the people in Israel, right? The way people say when they get off the plane in Israel, I feel like I'm home. So Rav Kook says, yeah, that's true halachically also, right? Because you identify with the people of Israel as the people of your city, well, that makes it that they have the halachic status of the people of your city. That type of rule, right, points in the direction of saying that ear isn't only geographic, right? It's also about who I who do I, I identify with and associate with and value as part of my innermost circle. And if that's the case, then we might suggest that when it comes to a globalized world, um, we might even replace the idea of geography with that of identification, of association, um, and the like. More evidence of this can be adduced. I'm going to skip the graph for now. It's not so important for our purpose at the moment. But if you skip to the Shiari Knesset Agdola, number 14, he makes this very clear and he says, listen, be'ir shehem nechlakim lechavurot, chavurot, kilot, kilot, in a city where they're subdivided into groups. So then your community is your poor and the poor of another community is someone else's poor, right? So the Shiari Knesset Agdola clearly thinks that when we say your city, what we mean is your community, right? Similarly, the Derech Amuna suggests, this is Reb Chaim Kanievsky, he says, who are the poor of your house, your neighbors. So they come before the other people in your city. And some suggest, what's your neighbor? So you might think your neighbor is the person who lives next door to you. He says, maybe not. It's the person who's regularly at your house. And not those who live near your house. And some disagree and say that, no, your neighbor is the person who physically lives next door. So here in Reb Chaim Kanievsky, you see exactly this tension. He quotes one position who says, the geographic standard is a geographic standard. And therefore your neighbor is the person who lives next door. And then he quotes a second position that your neighbor are the people that frequent your house or the people you hang out with, the people you see, the people you talk to which offers a non-geographic model to think about ear, to think about city as not city, but community. Um, and Rav Asher Weiss is very, very strongly in favor of the identity-based model. So if you look at 16, Rav Asher Weiss says, Even though the halachic authorities have given rules 
of precedence and charity. You have to understand the reality on the ground. Even though Chazal say that the poor of your city take precedence, this is only in their times. Because if you didn't take care of the people next door, no one would take care of them. But nowadays, and now come right, he says it very specifically in terms of technology, which has been the organizing uh, theme of these three shirim. He says, now in this time where we have communication, and this mass communication. The poor people travel across the world to get donations. Or there are these rabbinic organizations, the Gufet Staka, or these charitable organizations, and they collect for these poor people. They advertise in ways that shatter boundaries and distances. Then that person isn't the poor of your city because he doesn't need you anymore. Right, the principle of ani yircha is you're supposed to give precedence to the people in your city because they need you, but he doesn't need you. He's being taken care of by this charitable organization that collects money from the whole world, and therefore, um, we should look more at the other models, at the models of identification and association, than of geography. Okay, um. I'm going to pause for a second. Do you think this is compelling? Right, Ilana already said that she suggested this model exactly, that we think about ear in a different way. Do you find it compelling? And does it matter what type of charity we're talking about? So, I mean, I'll tell you my, my thoughts. When I first learned this topic, I was convinced of this theory to the end, right? That look, it used to be that geography overlapped with identity and association, but now we've split the two and therefore charity should go along lines of association, identification, who I care about, who I think is part of my community and not geography, who cares? So you happen to live in whatever city, right? You live in Manhattan, you don't know your next door neighbor. So what, right? Okay, that's not my community. My community is not the person, or I, I don't know the name of the person who lives, right? I live in apartment 6D. I don't know the person who lives in 6C. I don't know the person who lives in 6E. So that's not my community. But I've come to, good. So Ilana says exactly what I started to think about. And as I've given this sheer at different points, people have made this point and I find it very compelling, which is, well, that's great. Sort of, except um, what about people who don't have a community? Or I'll put it sharper. The people who need charity the most are often the people who don't have that type of community, right? So if we, if we take this down to an actual case, so let's say you live in, I don't know, right? You live in the Upper East Side of Manhattan and Davin at KJ or you live in Woodmere, right? Or you live in Lawrence, or you live in whatever, right? Wealthy community you live in. Likely the people that you associate with um, are wealthy or well-to-do. And the people who really, really are not wealthy are probably not running your social circle, right? They might live a few blocks away, I mean, Right, they might live um, a few miles away, um, but they're probably not in your social circle because that's not realistically who's probably diving in your shul. But those are often the people who need stuck of the most. On the other hand, when it comes to institutions, which was the case that I started with, I think I have the intuition that I do have a moral of a moral obligation to, let's say, Yeshiva Haaretzion, which is my alma mater than I do to the Satmar Kolel that in this theoretical world opened up in Efrat. So I wonder whether we have to draw a distinction between 
um, institutional types of charity, where really what makes it, right, it's not a person. What makes Yeshiva Haritzi on my community is that I identify with them. But when it comes to the poor, like people who actually don't have money, um, it could be that there, if I really limited myself to the identity type of community, to who do I associate with, I'm going to leave out the people who need the money the most. And therefore, maybe it's worthwhile to have a hybrid model where we take the benefits of both. We recognize that on the one hand, definitely an institutional stock up, um, the identification and association, right? If you come to classes at Drisha, so you feel a hakaratato, you feel grateful, you should make a donation, right? To Drisha, that, that, right? You should feel a moral pull towards that. But when it comes to stuck at individuals, the people who might need it most, the people you don't know their names, right? Who don't have a support group. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we have to jettison the um, association model in in classic stuck either, right? Because if my best friend needs help and they live, you know, thousands of miles away, so I think there is a good reason to believe that I should also give them stock up. But I think the complexity here highlights the fact that on the one hand, the fact that we're connected with the whole world does allow us to forge meaningful communities that are not based on geography. But on the other hand, there is certain benefits to recognizing geography because it forces us to help those who we specifically don't have any connection to emotionally. And that's why they're in so much need, right? And therefore I've come back, I've come to sort of, right? Pull back from only thinking in terms of identity. I'm much more com comfortable talking in terms of identification and association, as I said, when it comes to institutional charity. But when it comes to individual charity, to give up on the geographic model, to forget that the people who need you most might be the people who live, you know, next door, but for whatever reason have trouble making friends, right? Maybe because they are poor, right? And they, right, can't afford to come to all the events that you are and send their kids to all the extracurriculars that your kids are in. And right, people often make friends that way and they can't afford to be in those situations where they can make the friends to, in that sense, geography is very helpful, right? Because I can say, listen, I don't really know you so much, but I see that you need help and I'm gonna give you because you know who else is gonna help you? Um, now, as we saw, Rav Usher Weiss was not convinced of this, right? Rav Usher Weiss, um, really thought that even when it comes to personal charity, the standard of an Ircha is not as important, but that's because he said, well, but poor people are being helped by these huge international organizations, right? So that's another factor that you need to think about where on the one hand, yes, maybe the poor don't have um, a support group that can give them money. But on the other hand, um, if they happen to run into the right rabbi, he might get them, be, right? He might put them on the list of this multi, right? You know, this huge international stock organization, um, right? And um, right, Kathy says, right? I think that a hierarchical, monocle, uh, a hierarchical model of charity was relevant when there were no social welfare organizations. And today, perhaps we need to look at different models that are not dependent on hierarchy, but rather on other criteria of need, right? So it could be, um, that another way, maybe even more radical, would be to say, listen, now that we have these international organizations, and in theory, we could level the playing field I mean, in terms of geography and things like that, maybe we just need to look at, you know, how much do people need? Um, now, to be fair, right, that's, the, that's sort of the philosophy behind the, um, the effective altruism um, charities, right? That they just figure out what in the world has the highest level of need that can be solved with the least money, right? And then we just look at need and effectiveness and that's it, right? So, right, nets for, to protect people from malaria always goes right up there at the top, right? So we could say that maybe um, the way that we've connected the world has broken down some of these hierarchies um, such that we have to look just at need, right? Or give much more emphasis to need. That's also possible. Um, I want to show you a, uh, a document. It's not really, 
I don't, I don't know if I would call it a halachic document. It's halachically inspired, right? Uh, I, I would say that. Um, this was a document by Ramosha Heinemann, who's the, uh, the the leading rabbinic voice in, in the Baltimore community. Um, in many ways, as I know from my friends and, and students in Baltimore, um, he is seen as somehow, right, even not officially, he's like the overarching rabbinic voice in the community. Um, so he wrote a document a few years ago, at this point, I think more than a few years ago, um, giving suggestions on how people should divide their charity. And I think what you see in Rav Heinemann's document is an attempt to balance these two definitions of community that we have, the moral obligation, the identification model, who do I feel connected to more on the one hand, and on the other hand, the recognition that maybe the people who need stuck most are the people who don't have people who identify with them. They might just be your, the person who lives in your community and has no support group. So this was sort of the compromise he came up with, but I think it's very interesting in the way that it tries to negotiate these two values. So Reheimann writes, in allocating and dispersing staka funds, one should divide the amount of stock into thirds. The first one third should be given to needy individuals or institutions in town. A second third should be used to satisfy one's moral obligations, whether they be in town or elsewhere. In the event that one's moral obligations are all in town, then at least two-thirds of one's staka should be distributed in the Baltimore area. The final third may be given to any qualified individual or institution, including those out of town, provided that the requirement stated above of assuring that over 50% of one's staka be distributed in town has been satisfied. The following constitutes moral obligations. A needy relative or close friend, a mossad, meaning an institution in which you, your spouse, or your children received a Torah education without paying full tuition, which is, I think, a fascinating claim, right, is the not just the schools that you happen to send your kids to, but the ones who you sent your kids to and you benefited from Staka, essentially, from a tax break from them. And now there are parents who need that money in the school, right, who are now in the place that you were once in. Um, a Mossad or needy individual from which, with, from which you have direct benefit. A Mossad owned or directed by a relative or close friend to whom you feel a responsibility uh, to help. And then I gave you my little summary here that right from Rav Heinemann's argument, however, it seems that he does not think the notion of geographic community was replaced by the notion of an ideological one. Rather, he thinks that both notions of community are critical. On an intuitive level, his suggestion makes sense, right? This is just my summary. When it comes to charity for needy people, the issue at hand is not primarily ideological. Rather, we want to ensure that all poor people who need money for food and clothing are provided for. The insistence that each community provide for their own seems pragmatic. Indeed, it would seem preferable to require each geographic community to provide basic sustenance for its poor, because relying on people to give to those that they identify with would likely leave many without support, right? And I think that's sort of the intuition that Rav Heinemann um, goes towards. In 18, I gave you um, a summary by Rabbi Daniel Feldman of an argument by Rav Zulun Kharlap. Um, that suggests that maybe it's not just the case for institutions, but it really is the case, um, even when it comes to poor individuals. Uh, going back to the case of Ani Eretz Israel, but not the way we said it, said it originally, but to actually argue that nowadays um, the poor people in Eretz Israel actually have a higher level of demand on you um, because the notion of community has changed so much. So he writes as follows, Rizum Kharlap has suggested another factor that may in modern times divert emphasis away from Ani Ircha and in favor of Ani Eretz Yisrael. The increasing development of the global village has through technological advances both diluted the significance of those in immediate geographic proximity while enhancing the connection of faraway donors to those living in Israel. I mean, this is sort of like what we saw from Ravasha Weiss before is that on the one hand, you could argue as I think Rav Heinemann go, uh, does, that when it comes to poor people, uh, there's a benefit to thinking geographically. Uh, but on the other hand, you could say, but maybe not, because it is possible that the poor are supported by people far away. Uh, and therefore, even on a pragmatic level, they don't need their neighbors. They might just need to be 
put in touch with the proper um, Staka organization, whether it be Tomchei Shabbos or whatever, who's going to take care of them, right? So this idea of the global village um, and the technology that we have that really connects us, even to those who are not next door to us, on the one hand, can provide people with new means um, of access to funds, which might argue towards minimizing geography, even for the poor. On the other hand, recognizing that the people who live next door might really still need us because they don't have that support network. And I think, right, it's complicated, right? We need to recognize the double-edged sword of, um, of the global village. Um, okay. One more argument I want to make before I wrap up um, that does push in favor of those who are um, near you um, comes from a different Gemara. The, uh, the Gemara in Bava Metziah in number 20 says as follows. It's talking about the obligation to help an animal uh, that has collapsed, to help, help the animal and help the owner. So the Gemara says, so you might have thought even if at a distance you see the animal collapsing, you have to go and help the animal. Talmud Lomar kitifga, when you encounter it, ikitifga. So if you say, well, when you encounter it, maybe you only have to help an animal that's crushed under its load if you run into it physically. Talmud Lomar kitire, but it says when you see, so you don't have to run into it. So what is seeing that also has encounter? Um, Rabbi Turchiner, um, who was, I worked under him in, in Toronto. He's the Rosh Kolel of the uh, Beit Midrash Zichron Dov. Um, he notes that this may be more than just a localized rule in the context of unloading an, uh, an animal that's crushed under its load, but it could be adding yet another factor you have to think about. And that is that encounter with someone or even an animal in this case in need creates its own moral obligation, right? In addition to the moral obligation created by the people that I identify with, physically actually encountering somebody, right? Face-to-face -face contact, seeing a need, um, is itself also a moral and halachic um, reason to feel obligated. So he writes that the Torah speaks of helping your neighbor's animal in two separate passages. In one, it says to help when you see the animal. In the other, it says to help when you encounter the animal. The Talmud blends the two verses to say that we are obligated to act on behalf of others when we perceive a need with an intimacy that makes it an encounter. If we feel the impact, then we must be moved to act. Now, I think that there's multiple implications to that. On the one hand, that might mean that my neighbor, when I see that they need it, even though I don't know who they are, that's a moral obligation. On the other hand, if I see a charity or cause match um, crowdfunding on Facebook or someone WhatsApps me a link and I see the story or I see the, <clears throat> the mission statement of this institution or this person, and it, it moves me, I feel like I want to help, um, then maybe that's important too. Because at some level, the feeling that you've encountered need and are moved by it might also be a moral obligation. And in fact, that it, that at some level, that is the halacha, that if a poor person asks you for tzedakah, you're never allowed to say no unless you think they're lying. You have to at least give them something. That doesn't mean you have to give them a lot, but you have to at least acknowledge uh, the encounter in some way. So if I summarize um, this year, and then maybe take a minute to summarize what we've seen the last three weeks. As I said, right, we talk in this time of year about staka, right, the importance of staka, and it's critical. But what is staka? And as we've seen, um, going back to the Gemara, there are different standards for what it means to be obligated. There's the need standard, and how that balances the other standards really has to be fleshed out. But there's also this idea that, okay, if need is equal or relatively equal, there are also levels of moral obligation. 2,000 years ago, your family probably lived close. The people you affiliated with and associated with were also your physical neighbors. And therefore, there was overlap. 
And you didn't have to ask what makes something make someone part of my community? What makes that I have a moral obligation to them? But now that we live in the global village, right? On the one hand, that weakens ties to the people closest to us geographically. It strengthens ties with the people we care to be connected with, to the institutions we care to form communities with. It allows people on the one hand to access help across international borders, but the other hand, it means that some people who don't have that access are really completely isolated. And we need to ask, okay, we have a moral obligation to help people and to help institutions that are doing good work, but how do we figure out how to balance that? And what, you know, what, what I've tried to show is that some think that, listen, the real rule is who do you identify with? Who do you feel that you have a moral connection with? Others say, no, it's really about geography. And then there's this in-between, which is to say, look, there's a, there's a moral pull towards those you identify with, to those who've helped you in the past, helped your children in the past. But there's also reality that if we only care, care about the people that somebody cares about already, then the people who are most in need might fall through the cracks. And forcing a geographic model um, might be sometimes helpful, right? So to give a very practical example, I think most people would agree that if we eliminated the notion of a soup kitchen or a Tom Shabbos entirely, just got rid of it, right? Because we said, listen, Tom Shabbos is a geographic thing. A soup kitchen is geographic, right? Whoever's close is going to come. Whoever's close is going to get it. Is going to get a package for Shabbos. We should get rid of it because. Nowadays, we only think about Staka in terms of who do I identify with? What do I care that someone happens to me next door? That's obviously crazy, right? At some level, the geographic grounding does help the people, right? Who maybe have no one to go to, but can just walk into the soup kitchen, right? They walk by, they see they can have a hot meal, right? To totally eliminate the idea that I'm responsible for the people who actually live close to me would be to forget the people who have no support system, who have no community. On the other hand, to not recognize how much this has changed the way we think about a community and to therefore ignore the people that I actually care about and have a moral claim on my life just because I can get away with saying I gave to the person that I don't know next door, that also misses the way that we think about community. So I think that a hybrid model is important. And therefore, you know, it's, the, it's almost the Yamim Noraim. I'm sure that everyone is getting a million emails from every stuck organization that they've ever given to in the past. And we have limited funds. And I think it's important not just to give it this time of year, but to think about, well, what are the values that drive me to give? Both, right, what do I feel like I should give and who should I force myself to give to that maybe I'm forgetting about specifically because I'm so used to caring about the people that I emotionally already care about. And finding that balance is really a challenge. But when we say that staka is important, it's not just to give, but to give in a way that's true and authentic to the needs of, the, of people and the moral claims that people and institutions have on us. Um, and in the two minutes I have left, right, what I've tried to do in the last three weeks um, is to show you how this global community that we live in, this global village, it affects everything, right? We talk about chuva. We are it allows me if I want to, to never really take responsibility and live behind the veil of technology. Um, but that might lose, right? That really might lose something um, because I can't face the person I did something wrong to. But on the other hand, we saw that on the other hand, you know, the fact that I can put on Facebook or, or WhatsApp or Instagram, you know, I hope everyone forgives me, does allow me to spread a certain camaraderie across great geographic um, expanses, and that's also valuable. Then last week, we talked about tefillah, and we said on the one hand, maybe the lesson of, you know, davening for the person who you don't know, whose name is on Facebook, and WhatsApp, and Instagram, and whatever, teaches you to learn to care about people that are outside your sphere. But on the other hand, it might be that you have to recognize that I care about people, but in different ways. And now with Staka, I think the same thing is true, that on the one hand, we can talk about the new types of communities that we forged and that creating more moral responsibilities to support the institutions and the people that I care about and have a connection to. But on the other hand, we can't forget that 
just because we have broad communities and we have communities that go beyond those who live next door to us. Sometimes it's the people who are next door to us who don't have that type of support, who, doubt, who specifically need us to look at them simply because they're there, right? Um, and to really balance that and to recognize, as I said, my goal in this whole course was to show, um, and like I said, you know, I'm in the mi middle at the end now of publishing a book on this with Koren, um, to recognize how much the fact that we live in a globalized world, a global community, how that's changed and shaped every aspect of our life, and therefore so many aspects of halacha, and that to live in the modern world is to ask, how did this change our life? And therefore, how do we respond as religious people? That is, I think, one of the big challenges um, of living in the digital age. Um, but if we take it seriously and understand how our lives have changed, we'll be able to draw from the principles of halacha to respond uh, to, the new, to, the, to, to the new world uh, that we live in. So with that, a shana tova, tiva tova to everyone. I hope this was a little bit of uh, food for thought on um, these three values that really bring us into the Yamim Naraim. Um, and like I said, I hope that it, it spurs you to think about other ways in which our lives have been shaped by the technology that takes over our lives, but how we can use um, Torah to shape the way that we respond. So thank you very much. Evie, as always, thank you for, uh, for helping um, arrange on a, on a weekly basis. And if there are any questions or announcements, now is the time. Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Ziering. Are there any questions from anyone here? Any questions? Let me just double check the Facebook. Okay, no questions. Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Ziering. This was an excellent series. And thank you uh, so much to uh, everyone who uh, joined us today, not only here on Zoom, but also on uh, um, Facebook, Facebook Live. Uh, again, thank you, Rabbi Ziering. Um, and uh, just a few announcements be, uh, before we say Shana Tova and end. Uh, tonight at uh, 8 p.m., uh, we have a class with uh, Rabbi Silber exploring the readings of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, we have our final class before Rosh Hashanah with uh, Dr. Tzvi Novik, which will be exploring um, holiday readings, taking us through the visitation of Sarah. Uh, we have more classes scheduled, uh, scheduled during Tishrei. Uh, also, our music and liturgy project continues to be rolled out. You can learn uh, more information and also register for all of those wonderful things on elu.drisha.org. Um, on behalf of everyone here at Drisha and myself, Shana Tova Umetuka, we hope that um, learning the learning you have done with us will enrich your experience uh, these coming holidays. So Shana Tova, everyone. Everyone. And, and I, I forgot to mention, but you're always free if you have questions later to email me. My email is on the top of the source sheets um, and I will try to get back to you. Okay. Perfect. So looking forward to being in touch and Shana Tova to everyone. Leitraut. Leitraut. Leitraut.